Hi, everyone. Morning, everyone. Uh, let's pray as we come to look at this passage. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that we might have ears to hear what it is that you are saying to us and hearts that are eager to understand your word and to put it into practice in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter of Romans, was engaged in preaching the message of Jesus to the non-Christian world, to the non, the, I should say, the non-Jewish world, to Gentiles. And as he preached, many were becoming Christian. But in Paul's experience, many of his fellow Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And in this section of Romans, Paul is wrestling with the question, why have so many of my fellow Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah? Look again at the beginning of chapter 9, which we looked at last week. Chapter 9, verse 2, Paul says he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. See, Paul would even give up his own salvation if only his own people, the Jews, would come to believe. And we see this same depth of feeling that Paul has at the beginning of chapter 1, sorry, chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they might be saved. Why is it that so many of the Jewish people didn't believe in Jesus? Now, there's a similar question that I'm sure we wrestle with as well. Why is it that people don't believe in Jesus today? What Jesus offers is so good. Christianity makes so much sense of the world. Why do so many people reject it? That's a question we'll be thinking about. Let's back up a little bit to the end of chapter 9 and look at the problem as it's stated there. Chapter 9, verse 30. Paul summarises, he says, what shall we say then? He says that the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews, they did not pursue a righteousness, but they've obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness, they have not attained the goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it was by works. What Paul's talking about here when he talks about righteousness is that's a Bible way of saying being in a right relationship with God or being saved. And Paul says here that the Jewish people in his day thought that they could be right with God, they could be righteous by keeping the law that was given to them through Moses at Mount Sinai. But they had misunderstood. That's never what God intended. God saved Israel by grace out of Egypt and gave them the law at Sinai to show them how to live as his saved people. But the Jewish people thought they could earn their salvation by keeping the law. They thought that if they just sincerely obeyed it, God would be impressed with them and they could kind of earn their salvation. Paul calls that way of thinking salvation by works 
in verse 32. They thought they could achieve it by works. And he says, no, a right relationship God, with God isn't something that you earn by your own works, but by faith, because your good works are never good enough. We're saved by God's grace, undeserved. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. We're saved through faith. And that's what many of the Gentiles to whom Paul preached have received. They've re received a righteousness by faith, a right relationship with God through trusting in Jesus. Because as Paul explained earlier in the letter, we all sin. None of us is good enough, but Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And if we put our trust in him, we are accepted with God. But the Jewish people don't understand this. Well, many, many don't understand it in his day. Some did. Paul himself was a Jew, came to understand God's way of salvation by, by grace through faith and trust Jesus. In this next part of Romans, Paul likens salvation to a race with two very different paths one gets you to the finish that is faith in christ but the other path doesn't and that's the path of works now a month or so ago i watched a youtube of a guy running an ultra marathon i don't know whether you know what an ultra marathon is it's running a hundred kilometers quite impressive this ultra marathon was along the thames river in london now, I ran a marathon in my 30s, and I'll never do it again. Uh, after about 30 kilometres, I started cramping, and the last 10 kilometres were absolute agony. It took me about six months to recover, I think. Anyway, this ultramarathoner, at about 35 kilometres, he's almost run his marathon, uh, still got a fair way to go, but he's running along, and then he realises he's on his own. He hasn't seen any signs marking the course. He doesn't really think too much about it. He just keeps going. And then he stops and looks at the map on his watch. He's actually on the wrong side of the river. He's missed a sign. What is he going to do? He thought of swimming across the Thames, but he would have been disqualified because he would have missed one of the checkpoints. He could have just ignored his mistake and kept going until he reached 100 kilometres, but he wouldn't have completed the race that was set out. What he had to do was to realise, recognise he was on the wrong path, turn around, run back to where he missed the turn point, four kilometres as it turns out, and get back on the course. See, there's only one way to be in a right relationship with God. There's only one path, one race course, and that's through faith in Jesus. But many of the Jews in Paul's day, they're running the wrong course. They've gone astray. They thought that keeping the law was the course of the race that would get them a right relationship with God. But that was wrong. They've missed the sign. They haven't realised that it's through faith in Jesus that they'll get to the finish line. They reject that sign. They miss it. And they're running on the wrong course. Paul uses a different metaphor. He says they've actually tripped up in verse 32. He says, why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it was by works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. They've stumbled over Jesus and they've fallen. And Paul then quotes Isaiah 8 verse 14. He says, 
It's written in the Old Testament. See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. The one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Zion's another name for Jerusalem. And Jesus died on the cross just outside Jerusalem so that we could be in a right relationship with God. But Jesus is the stumbling stone for the Jews. However, if you put your trust in Jesus, then you'll get back on the right path. You'll be on the right course. That will get you to the finish of the race. Paul goes on to explain these two different courses in Romans 10. Uh, Romans 10 verse 1, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. They'll get on the right course and get to the finish. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. As we've seen, many of the Jews in Paul's day, they set up their own way, their own course to being right with God by doing the works of the law. And Paul says they were very zealous in their pursuits but their zeal is not based on knowledge. It's their own creation, their own imagination. Now, this ultra marathon guy, he was very zealous. He even videoed himself so that he could show the world later on what he'd done. But when he missed the turn, his zealousness counted for nothing. See, zeal, actually, it was counterproductive at that turn, at that point, because the more zealous, the more um, energy he put into running in the wrong direction, he had to then turn around and undo it all. See, just because you're zealous doesn't mean that what you're doing is right. Zeal has to be informed by knowledge. But it's not just the Jews back then. Plenty of people today reject Jesus, not based on knowledge, but based on feelings. But you can, your feelings can often lead you astray. Paul says in verse 4, it is Christ who's the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Now, this could be a number of things, I think, this verse, and all of them are true. Uh, it could mean that Christ is the culmination of the law in the sense that he's the, he's the goal. He's where the race finishes up. If you put your trust in Christ, he will get you to the end of the course. It could also mean that Christ has brought the law to an end, and that's true as well. We see in many other places in the New Testament, Christians are no longer under the law of Moses. It could also mean that those who trust in Christ put an end to using the law to try and earn God's salvation, and that's true as well. See, if, if, you, if you want to gain a righteousness by the law, if you want to do that works righteousness, then Moses tells you what you have to do. In verse 5, Moses writes about the righteousness that's by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. Now, it's true. Obedience to the law brings life. But as I said before, in the context of the Old Testament, God saved Israel by grace, saved them out of Egypt, brought them to himself at Mount Sinai, entered into relationship with them. They were saved by grace and then he gave them the law to show them how to live as his saved people. They were to live by faith. But the Jews in Paul's day had turned the law into something that they thought they could save themselves by. But if you're going to do that, you need to keep the whole law. 
But that's impossible because we all sin. And this goes back to what Paul was arguing earlier on in the book of Romans. Let me put up this on a PowerPoint screen for you. Uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Uh, summarizing his argument at the end of chapter 3, he says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. See that? That's what we're talk he's talking about here, the works of the law. You can't get right with God through works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. See, righteousness, which is by faith, is the opposite to this. Faith means depending, relying, trusting what God has done for us in Christ. Uh, Moses, who received the law from God and passed on to Israel, knew that Israel wasn't able to keep the law. And uh, we read before from Deuteronomy 30. And Moses, as we see, realized the law was never going to be a way of salvation. Uh, he knew that when they went into the land, they would fail to obey all that God requires. And indeed, they would be driven out of the land by the nations. God would use foreign nations to judge his people for their disobedience. But that was always with the hope that God would then restore his people. And what God would do, Moses saw in a future age, is what Israel couldn't do for themselves, namely obey the law, God would do for them. He would write the laws on their hearts, on their minds. Uh, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Moses says, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love him with all your heart and all your soul and live. See, circumcision was the external sign of being one of God's people, a Jew. But Paul says it's not enough just to have the external sign uh, because that doesn't deal with the problem of sin. But one day will come when God will deal with sin and he will write the requirements of the law on the heart. He will circumcise your heart. It will be an internal thing. And uh, at that day, uh, you will then love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. See, Moses looks to this time when God will do what Israel is unable to do. And uh, this, uh, Paul goes on to speak about also in Deuteronomy chapter 30, is a time when uh, the law will be in your heart. It won't be something that you have to, to look and explore and find for yourself. Moses says, what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It's not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. See there, the heart again. And Moses is there looking forward to a time which uh, in Jeremiah is called the new covenant, where God makes a new covenant with his people. And that is what God has done in Jesus. You don't have to go on some quest to get in a relationship with God. You don't have to go up into heaven. You don't have to go down into the depths. No, the word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. It's not through your works. It's through what God does. And we are simply called to have faith in that 
And uh, that's what Paul quotes here in Romans. Um, just uh, move the screen. There we go. Uh, so here in Romans chapter 10, verse 6, he says, The righteousness that's by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Well, who will descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. And that is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See how Paul is saying what Moses looked forward to, that's what's happened in Christ. It's always salvation by faith. Righteousness by faith. It's not a human quest for God. It's not about your good works. It's about what God has done in sending his son, the Lord Jesus. You don't have to go up to heaven to find it. You don't have to go down to the realm of the dead. That would be to deny what Jesus has already done. Jesus has already come from heaven to us. He's already been raised from the dead. God has done all the work for us in Christ. And the word that Moses said in Deuteronomy 30, that would be in your mouth and in your heart, Paul says that's the word that has come through faith in Jesus. See, Paul is following the sequence of Deuteronomy here. It's in your mouth and in your heart. Uh, verse 9, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. That's quoting that psalm, uh, from Isaiah 8 um, uh, earlier on. Um, won't be put to shame. Won't come under judgment. They'll be saved. Um, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, that's the salvation by faith in Christ. It makes no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Both Jew and Gentile ultimately are saved by faith in Christ. Well, that then takes us back to the question, uh, the question that Paul is asking. Why is it then that so many of the Jews have rejected Jesus? Is it because they haven't heard about him? Is it because no one was sent to tell them? Well, in answering this question, Paul sets out how the message about Jesus brings faith. And uh, he works backwards. And I put this on a, a PowerPoint. Uh, let me show you again. Show screen. Okay, here we go. You can all see that? Great. Okay, so verse, um, verse 14, he says, how then can they call on the one that they've not believed in? So that's what faith is here, believing and calling on God. He's working backwards. And how can they believe in the one they've not heard? So you need to hear, to understand, to have faith. And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? So you see the sequence? God sends the preacher who preaches 
uh, people hear and understand, which then brings faith, showing itself in people believing in God and calling on God, uh, calling on God in prayer. Now, Paul then, having spelled out this sequence, what he's trying to do is understand where it's broken down for the Jewish people. In terms of the sequence, did God send them a preacher? Of course he did. Verse 16, uh, not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? See, Isaiah himself is an example of a preacher who preached the good news. But Isaiah says his message wasn't believed. It didn't result in faith. Uh, so what's happening in Paul's day isn't something new. Um, uh, the quote in verses 16 and 17 is I also well, quoting from Isaiah chapter 53, where God in no uncertain terms spelled out that it was through the suffering servant uh, that God's people would be made right with him. And the suffering servant, of course, is what Jesus has done in dying on the cross. The next point then, well, if God sent a preacher who preached, did they not hear? Well, verse 17, consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. The message is heard through the word about Christ. But I asked, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. And that's a quote from Psalm 19, which speaks of the knowledge of God going out to the ends of the earth. The Jewish people have certainly heard. So God sent the preacher who preached. The Jewish people have heard. Have they not then understood? Well, verse 19, again, I asked, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I'll make you envious by those who are not a nation. I'll make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. Uh, this is a quote from Moses' song to Israel at the end of Deuteronomy, where he recounts God's history of gracious acts for Israel. But so often Israel forgets about God. They, 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 they sin. And Moses said, God will use the Gentiles to make Israel jealous in the hope that they will come back to him. But it's not only Moses, the prophets say the same thing. In verse 20, Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who didn't seek me, the Gentiles. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me, uh, the Gentiles. See, the Gentiles, they weren't asking for a relationship with Israel's God, but they've been given one. And so this raises the question again, if the Gentiles have understood why on earth haven't Israel understood? And verse 21 tells us why. Verse 21, concerning Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. See, this is where it breaks down. Uh, the people have failed to understand. God sent the preacher who preached. They heard the message, but they failed to understand because of their disobedience and their obstinance. They don't want to acknowledge that they're on the wrong path. They would rather keep running the wrong course than acknowledge their mistake and turn around. Why? Well, this is the problem of human pride, isn't it? And it's not just Israel that's guilty of this. We're all guilty of this. 
Indeed, the different religions of the world are all just human ways of plotting our own course to God, creating our own race. Atheism doesn't even want to get on the course to God. They'd rather sit in front of the TV and eat, drink and be merry and mock people who'd run the course as being stupid. But this message of Jesus, of a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus, ultimately calls on each of us to humble ourselves because we can't get right with God through what we do. Good works are never good enough. As hard as you try, as zealous as you are, it's not enough. Another analogy is like being caught in a rip at the beach. We all think we're strong. We're not going to get caught in the rip. We think we can fight it. But if the rip is strong enough, fighting against the rip only tires yourself out all the more. And people who do that drown more quickly. That's what happens to the English and German tourists who visit Australia and aren't familiar with our waters. See, if you're caught in a rip, you need to acknowledge your need of help. You raise your hand to the beach for the lifesaver to come. You trust them to come and save you, humiliating as that might be, especially if the beach is crowded. But you acknowledge that you can't do it. And it's the same with God. We can't save ourselves. We must humble ourselves, admit our inability, and put our trust in Jesus as Saviour. He is the one who saves. Well, why don't people believe in Jesus today? Well, I think this passage shows us a couple of reasons why people don't believe in Jesus. And the first is they don't understand. Even the Jews who had the scriptures, the, the Old Testament, and that sets out the course plainly. The Jews read the scriptures regularly, but they misunderstood them. But notice how Paul keeps on trying to explain. He goes through passage after passage from the Old Testament, and I think he's a good example for us. Unfortunately, today, people don't often read the Bible. They're just happy to misunderstand it in ignorance, but we need to encourage people to read the Bible for themselves. And as we have an opportunity to seek to explain it to them, to show them how it points to Jesus, to read it with them, to help them to understand. So that's one reason people don't read the Bible. We need to encourage them to. The second reason we see in this passage for why people don't believe in Jesus is because at the end of the day, understanding the Bible is a moral issue rather than an intellectual one. Christianity is entirely rational, indeed, much more rational than the alternatives on offer. But if you don't like the moral teachings of Jesus and you obstinately want to run your own course in life, even though that won't get you to the end, if you don't want to understand, you're going to refuse. And I see many people just want to sit on the couch, not even aware that there's a race going on. And that's ultimately why we need to pray for our family and friends who don't yet know Jesus. Even Moses knew it's only God who puts the message into people's hearts so that they can understand and believe. See, at the end of the day, it's a moral issue. It's a spiritual issue more than it's an intellectual one. And like Paul says in verse 1, I think this passage challenges us that it must be our heart's desire and our prayer to God 
that people may be saved. See, it's that prayer, prayer to God, that God will save people. It's his work, as we were reminded of last week in Romans chapter 9. But the last verse is a challenge as well, verse 21. Notice how God is described here. Notice how God held out his hands to a disobedient and obstinate people all day long. That's patience, isn't it? That's patience. And that all day long was thousands of years. Likewise, too, we must persevere and pray for our non-Christian friends and family. Let's pray that we might do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that sets out the course of the race of our lives so clearly. And that course uh, is ultimately salvation, um, the, the life with you, but it will only get there through faith in you, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your word sets this out so plainly, and yet uh, we thank you that you have opened our eyes to this through the Spirit, um, that uh, you have put this on our hearts. Uh, help us never to be proud. Help us to be thankful and humble before you. And uh, we pray too so earnestly that we might have the, the passion that Paul had for his fellow countrymen, that we might have that for our fellow countrymen as well, that they might know Jesus, that they will stop living in darkness, that they will stop the futility of living life without you, without knowing you. And uh, we pray that you may use us to explain your word, to explain what Jesus has done. Uh, to look ahead uh, to how we might run this race and get the prize. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.